Welcome back to the Religions of the Ancient Mediterranean podcast. My name is Philip Harland. I'm a professor at York University in Toronto. And we're continuing on the series, Paul and his Communities. Today we move on to look at the Christian community, the followers of Jesus, at Corinth. In particular, how Paul relates to these followers of Jesus at Corinth. We begin by considering the city of Corinth before moving on to asking the question, what was the history of Paul's relationship with these followers of Jesus at Corinth? Then we consider the actual situation among the followers of Jesus at Corinth, including the question of what was the makeup of the community here. We have indications of their ethnic status and their social status, and it's quite different than what we considered at Thessalonica. Namely, there seems to be a spectrum of social economic levels within the community of Christians at Corinth. We then move on to consider the problems that Paul identifies that he feels are going on among the Christians at Corinth. In this episode, we begin to get into these problems, including the problems of divisions among different house churches at Corinth. The first four chapters of 1 Corinthians we consider in this episode. We then go on to one more problem, namely the problem mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 regarding the behavior of one particular member of the Jesus movement. The subsequent two episodes after this continue on with the situation at Corinth and then look at how does Paul respond to that situation. So I hope you enjoy this episode too. When we looked at uh, the Christians at Thessalonica, we were doing two things, remember. We were looking at the actual Christians there and trying to find out about them. And what we found out about them was that they were Gentiles, that they were primarily hand workers, and that they were faced with a situation of being socially ostracized by their neighbors in Thessalonica. Not only that, but they were worried about the fact that some of their friends and family had died and were thinking that the end was going to be so immediate. From what they learned from Paul, they thought the end was going to be any second. So much so that they were, didn't know what to do if a friend died. How is a friend going to be saved from the wrath if they're gone? So that situation we got a glimpse of gave us an idea of what's going on among the Christians at Thessalonica. We also looked at, though, Paul and tried to get a sense of what does First Thessalonians tell us about Paul. And it gave us a glimpse into some of the Hellenistic elements of Paul, including his style of teaching that's similar to other philosophers in the Greco-Roman world. It gave us a glimpse into the Judean worldview, at least the apocalyptic uh, Judean worldview of Paul. We're going to do the same thing with Corinthians and other letters. We're going to look at those two things, the Christians at a particular locale and Paul, and try and see what we can know about each using this whole method of situation and response. Something that stands out, and these are my main points for 1 Corinthians, in the case of Corinth, in terms of the Jesus followers there, what stands out is the fact there are divisions among the followers of Jesus at Corinth in a way that there were not divisions at Thessalonica. This is a key characteristic that Paul emphasizes is the divisions among the Christians. Now these divisions we're going to go into in depth are social divisions, divisions between rich and poor. They're ideological divisions, divisions between people who are highly educated and have particular ideologies that differ from people who are not educated and don't hold those ideologies. So there's a lot of things behind the divisions at Corinth that go far beyond the stereotypical thing of theology. There's all kinds of things going on, but Paul primarily characterizes it as divisions, quite different than Thessalonica. 
we're seeing the diversity from one place to the next of Jesus followers. You've got to ask what's going on here and what's going on there. You can't assume Christians are thinking or doing the same things everywhere. You certainly cannot. Paul's striving to, make, to get them organized into doing what he thinks they should do, but they don't, generally. The Thessalonians are praised for doing what he likes, but the Corinthians are not. And we'll get into that. So that's one side of what we're looking at today. The other side of what we're looking at is getting further into Paul, his Judean side, and especially in the case of 1 Corinthians, we can look at the Hellenistic side of Paul in terms of his rhetoric. Because 1 Corinthians, we'll soon see, illustrates well Paul's training in civic rhetoric, in the rhetoric of the civic context. And we'll get into that soon enough. But that's enough just to give you a tease as to what our main points are today uh, and what we're getting into. Let's look at the place, Corinth, for a moment. Corinth is a Greek city originally, was sacked in 146 BCE by the Romans, and only fully rebuilt in 44 BCE. And when it was rebuilt, it was rebuilt by the Romans. And what the Romans did is what they sometimes did elsewhere. They needed a place to retire their soldiers, and so they found a Roman colony. So this phrase, Roman colony, is what scholars use to describe these retirement areas for Roman soldiers. The result of this is the Greek past is still there to some degree. However, Corinth becomes more heavily Roman, and Latin is more prevalent in the inscriptions that are found there than Greek is even though it's a Greek city. So once again, we have Greek and Roman things mixed together, which is what you expect in any city in this period. But there's more tendency towards the Latin side of things, towards the Roman side of things, culturally speaking. Corinth is also, uh, beyond that sort of political history, Corinth is very important for economics because it's right on the Isthmus, which allows people to pass from Italy into this uh, bay here, cross the little piece of land, get boats going from here over to Egypt or over to Asia Minor. It's a way of avoiding the very rough waters around the outer edge of Greece. Strabo, a geographer of the first century, talks about Corinth a little bit and gives us a little, talks a little bit about this economic importance. Corinth is called wealthy because of its commerce, since it is situated on the Isthmus and is master of two harbors, of which the one leads straight to Asia and the other to Italy. And it makes easy the exchange of merchandise from both countries that are so far distant from each other. He goes on a little bit later to talk about another economic advantage of Corinth. But to the Corinthians of later times, still greater advantages were added. For also the Isthmian Games, which were celebrated there, were wont to draw crowds of people. So in the Hellenistic world, and then even when Rome takes over, there's these official festivals that are known as universal festivals. Universal Hellenistic festivals that people would travel from all over the Greek world to go to them. And the Isthmian Games were one of them. So it's an economically important city. In terms of culture, you have a variety of gods worship there. Uh, Aphrodite is quite prominent in some of the material we have. We don't have much evidence of Judeans there, except for one little fragmentary Hebrew inscription, which is hard to date, which may be reconstructed. They're not sure. We just have part of the Hebrew word there as a reference to the synagogue of the Hebrews. And we do have evidence of Judeans in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Uh, We have evidence of it that we'll get into soon. Let's move on to the question of how uh, Paul relates to these Christians at Corinth. The same question we asked before we got into 1 Thessalonians was, 
okay, we've got this letter. Do we have evidence of what happened before the letter was written? And in the case of 1 Corinthians, we do have quite a bit of evidence of what happened before it was written. That, and also evidence that helps us understand the letter itself as a result. First of all, you have Paul's initial visit, which you have to have. It turns out in 1 Corinthians, he gives a glimpse into the message he teaches once again when he went to Corinth. And at the beginning of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, he summarizes his main message when he goes to places. Remember, we had that with 1 Thessalonians, but here are some elements added to it that are worth pointing out. So at the beginning of chapter 15, he says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, in what terms I preach to you the good message which you received, in which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold it fast, unless you believed in vain. Here he goes. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. This delivering and receiving language is the language of tradition, the language of things being passed on. And so he's claiming that this is a message that others use when they go to different places too. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That phrase right there is loaded. And it's loaded with something we haven't seen yet expressed quite this way. This idea of Christ dying and being raised, we already saw important when we looked at 1 Thessalonians. We haven't yet seen quite this blatantly in a summary statement, the idea that Christ's death somehow accounts for human sins. So that seems to be part of what Paul teaches when he goes somewhere, that Christ died and was raised, and that has some implications for human sin. And somehow that this idea of Christ being a sacrifice for sins is something that is understood to be reflected in Jewish scriptures, in accordance with the scriptures. That somehow Paul teaches that this is something that's in the Jewish scriptures, in the Torah, in the law. The law is his authority when he's teaching. This will complicate the whole notion of what is Paul's view of the law later on when we get into it with Galatians. The authority for his whole gospel, his good message, is the scriptures, according to what he's saying here. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day. Look at he emphasized again, in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to, and he's going to list Peter and then all the other people that he appeared to. But this idea of Christ dying for sins, that, he, that Christ was raised, and that both of these elements are based on an interpretation of the Jewish scriptures. In the case of a first century Judean like Paul, his Pharisaic background determines how he interprets Scripture. And the fact that he's a Pharisee who believes Jesus is the Messiah totally changes how he interprets things. He's still using Pharisaic methods, but another Pharisee wouldn't agree, right? He may point to the same passage, another Pharisee would go, no, I think it refers to this or that. Uh, so it's a dis differences of interpretation is what it comes down to. So the initial visit and is Paul's message Namely, that Christ died and was raised. Remember his obsession, his focus on that. He's not focused on Jesus' life or Jesus' teachings. That is not the focus of Paul's good message. The focus of Paul's good message is Jesus died and God raised him. After this initial visit, we know that Paul wrote a letter before he wrote 1 Corinthians because he refers to it. So if you look at that passage, 1 Corinthians 5.9, Paul just refers to, in my letter to you. When he's writing, to, he's talking about a letter we don't have. So 1 Corinthians is not 1 Corinthians. It's a quick way of putting it, right? There was another letter that we just don't have. There are hints that we do have a fragment of that earlier letter. Because 2 Corinthians, what we label 2 Corinthians in the New Testament, is actually a collection of a variety of letters. 
and it seems like there may be a fragment of this earlier letter, the pre-1 Corinthians letter, in that passage, 2 Corinthians 6.14-7.1. to The reason scholars suggest that is because the way Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 5.9, in my previous letter, and then he talks a bit about what the content was, and then if you look at that little fragment that doesn't fit in 2 Corinthians, it's sort of, it talks about the same thing. Then he also heard back from some members of the Christian community at Corinth. In fact, he heard back from two main camps, you could say, of the believers of Jesus at Corinth. On the one hand, he heard an oral report from Chloe. And you may have seen this in the first chapter, in chapter 1, verse 11. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there, are, that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. The report from Chloe includes the fact that there's quarreling or divisions in the church at Corinth. So there is a report from Chloe, a woman who evidently is an important woman within the followers of Jesus there. And she's reporting to Paul. She's obviously on the side of Paul, so to speak, and is worried about something and sends her people. She's a wealthy enough woman to have people. That means slaves, right? That means your clients and your slaves. You also have evidence in 1 Corinthians that some of the Christians at Corinth, and remember, it's always some. We're talking about all different people within the followers of Jesus at Corinth. They're not all together. From chapter 7 and following, we have Paul almost explicitly telling us that the Christians at Corinth, or some of the Christians at Corinth, a certain group of Christians at Corinth, wrote a letter to Paul before he wrote back with 1 Corinthians. Look at the beginning of chapter 7, and this phrasing gets repeated. The first time, it's explicitly referring to a letter. Every other time, it just has the earlier phrase. So chapter 7 says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, the Corinthians wrote to him, some of the Corinthian Christians. And then he's going to talk about marriage there. And then you'll see Perry Day, now concerning, now concerning. Those, that's the catchphrase that tells you he's going on to another topic that some of the Corinthian Christians wrote to him about. And then he's addressing what he thinks about the issues they wrote about in their letter. So there's those two main sources of information Paul has. The oral report from Chloe's people and a letter from one particular group among the followers of Jesus at Corinth. Then you have Paul writing 1 Corinthians in response to what he hears. Then you have, after that, a number of other letters written that have been collected together, it seems, in 2 Corinthians. We won't get into those fully today. But just to mention to you, they they show a continuing tensions in the relationship between Paul and the followers of Jesus at Corinth. Paul's relationship with the Corinthians is quite different than the Thessalonians in that regard. Paul has nothing but praise when he's talking to the Christians at Thessalonica. That is not the case in his relationship with the Christians at Corinth. There's quite a bit of difference then in how Paul relates to different communities. But basically how most scholars would divide up 2 Corinthians roughly, even though there's more than just these two divisions, would be that 2 Corinthians 10 to 13 precedes, chronologically, 2 Corinthians 1 to 9. And it's precisely in that 2 Corinthians 10 to 13, the whole issue of Paul's financial support and the debates he has with the Christians at Corinth over whether or not he will accept patronage, benefaction, from wealthy members of the followers of Jesus at Corinth. In fact, he refuses financial support from the Christians at Corinth And this ends up causing enmity, a negative relationship between these wealthier members of the Jesus movement at Corinth and Paul. If 2 Corinthians 1-9 is the last thing, it seems like tensions were eased. 
and things ended off with being less tense in the end. So that gives you a quick glimpse through uh, some of the aspects of Paul, the history of Paul's relation with the Christians at Corinth. Now let's delve into what we can know about the situation that is revealed in this letter, 1 Corinthians. We'll deal with some of the same questions we asked at, at Thessalonica. First of all, regarding the makeup of the Christian community at Corinth, namely their ethnic makeup and their social economic status. We do have considerable evidence in 1 Corinthians. And it's evidence that until the more recent interest in social history that was often neglected in the past. You may remember I've alluded to a common theory of the social level of early Christianity. Deisman is the scholar who's known most for this view. Deisman argued that early Christianity was a lower class, working class movement. And that the vast majority of early Christians were lower class. That's the older view that is now highly questioned. And the new consensus view emerging among scholars is that early Christianity reflected the spectrum of local culture and local society. And it was different from one place to the next. So Thessalonica, we've already seen. Working class, yes. But Corinth, no. Quite a variety of social levels, it seems, within the community at Corinth. So much so that we have wealthy people among the Christians at Corinth Some of the problems Paul discusses that he sees going on among the Corinthians can almost only be explained as the activity of upper-class Corinthians who belong to the Jesus movement. So there's a spectrum of social levels within early Christianity in the new consensus view of scholarship that challenges Deisman's old view. A very interesting passage that used to be used for the old view but now is used for the new view is in 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verses 26 and following. Look what Paul says here. For consider your call, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. This phrase, noble birth, eugenes, well-born, is the common word used for the upper classes in the Greco-Roman world. The key here is that once you start interpreting this in light of the other problems at Corinth, not many tells you some. Some of you are well-born. Some of you are upper class. Some of you are among the influential in Corinth. And what I would suggest to you, it's probably that followers of Jesus reflects the social structure of Corinth, perhaps. So that there's some upper class people in the Jesus group, some lower class in the Jesus group, and that there's a spectrum in between, and that that may mirror Corinthian society generally. We'll get into some of the problems more fully that illustrate this upper class element that is there, and I won't say much more about it now because we've got lots of time when we're working through the problem. Now, in terms of ethnic identity, we do know that there are at least some Judeans, if we can interpret something in connection with Acts reliably. You know how we need to be careful about using the Acts of the Apostles when we're reconstructing what's going on with Paul? Once in a while, there are things in Paul's letters that are also referred to in Acts. And there you're on reliable ground, moving from Paul to Acts. It turns out that both Acts and Paul talk about a figure at Corinth, Crispus. Paul, in chapter 1, just refers to the fact that, I'm thankful that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. If you go to the account in Acts 18, you see that Acts reports that Crispus was the leader of the synagogue. So this is a Judean, not only a Judean, but a Judean who was a leader of the synagogue at Corinth, who now belongs to the Jesus group here. But we're just using Crispus as an example. There's some Judeans among the followers of Jesus at Corinth. However, the majority seem to be, or at least most of the problems Paul deals with here, 
reflect not Judeans, but Gentiles. So once again, our argument for the Gentile status of most of the followers of Jesus at Corinth will just come out as we're working through these problems that Paul identifies. Let's get into some of the uh, main problems that Paul identifies that are going on with the, that, that reflect the situation at Corinth. The main way he characterizes it is that Corinth and the, group of, the groups of Christians at Corinth are divided. The main characteristic is divisions and inequalities. Most of the problems he deals with can be summarized under that heading. The first sign of divisions comes right in the first chapter and continues from chapters 1 to 4. The whole chunk of chapters 1 to 4 seems to be dealing with one main aspect of the divisions that are going on at Corinth. The way Paul characterizes it is this. I'll read the portion that's actually his thesis, and later we'll get back to his response, but it's his thesis, and then the mention of Chloe's report, and then the divisions. I appeal to you, brothers, I'm in verse 10 of chapter 1. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no dissensions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So the issue is there is divisions among different groups of followers of Jesus. We're already getting a glimpse into the fact that there's more than one group of followers of Jesus at Corinth, meeting perhaps separately. And they're aligning themselves with certain figures. We're the Paul group. We're the Peter group. We're the Apollos group. Apollos is our favorite. Apollos is another one of the uh, leaders of the Jesus movement, right, that has gone through Corinth. And Paul talks about him in chapters 1 to 4. That Paul had been there, and since that, Apollos had come. Paul doesn't seem too upset about Apollos. He's not talking about, like in Galatians, we'll see that Paul's upset about people come through later and advocate an entirely different view of the Jesus movement than what Paul had. He doesn't seem to think that way about Apollos. He, He says that, I planted the seed, Apollos came and watered it. He talks like that. But nonetheless, divisions have arisen, maybe without Paul's wanting it and without Apollos wanting it. Divisions have arisen where different groups of Jesus followers are aligning themselves with different figures. This leads to an important aspect of early Christianity that you need to know and that gets reflected in 1 Corinthians and elsewhere. Namely, that it seems that the followers of Jesus met in households. The main setting of gatherings of early Christians was within a household. Whose household? Well, first of all, you had to have someone who belonged to the Jesus group or who was friendly enough to the Jesus group and wealthy enough to own a house that would fit a few people in it to offer out their house. So it's usually a wealthier members of the Jesus group that become the people who offer their homes as a place for people to meet. And obviously, if you're meeting in a home, there has to be few enough people to fit into that, into your living room, so to speak. We're talking about groups of 10 to 15 to 20 to 30 people in a group of Jesus followers. And here at Corinth, we're talking about several groups of 10 to 15 to 20 to 30 followers of Jesus meeting in different households and also starting to be a little bit rivalry among them. So we're back to the issue of, by the way, back at Thessalonica, we did get a glimpse of where the Christians were meeting in the workshop. We had Paul preaching to them while he was working in the workshop. That's another social setting, in other words, where, in which you could have gathering of followers of Jesus. But in terms of worshiping together, in terms of 
engaging in worshiping the Jewish God together and, and honoring the son of that God and all that, that would be taking place primarily within private quarters of someone's house. And at Corinth, it would be the wealthier people that we've already alluded to who would be supplying their household. Which brings us to another factor that's important to mention in connection to this section, chapters 1 to 4, that deals with the different groups meeting in different households. And that is, it's a practice among the wealthy, not within Christianity specifically, but a practice among the wealthy in Greco-Roman society, in places like Corinth, is to have rivalries with your peers. I'm a somewhat wealthy person in Corinth. I'm going to have rivalries with other people of my own status because it's a rivalry over establishing one's honor and by shaming your peers, you establish your own honor. Remember that whole honor culture we were talking about here where you try and establish your own status, your own honor in society? It may be, and this is something Andrew Clark, a scholar named Andrew Clark, has looked at. It seems to be that at Corinth, these divisions are by household, and that it's the wealthy person who supplies the household. Not only that, but there may be rivalries between the leader and the leader of the other Jesus groups. Rivalries between them over status, over establishing honor within Greco-Roman society. So that's what you have chapters 1 to 4. When you go back to it, you'll start to see how that is integrated together that way. Paul repeatedly talks about quarreling, divisions among them, and trying to convince them to do otherwise. Tomorrow's asking whether or not the, uh, you know, how we have a wealthy person offering their home as a place to meet. And she's asking whether or not the members of, these, of, of such a group, the lower class members, in other words, the people that aren't the wealthy guys supplying the house, whether or not they may be involved in the rivalries. And what I've talked about so far may give a hint. Namely, if indeed it is rivalries between wealthy people that are being acted out through the house church division, in the Greco-Roman society, there's this idea of wealthy people having clients. Wealthy people having lower class people who respect them and come regularly to their homes and recognize their status. And the more clients you have showing how honorable you are, the more your honor status is built up within the society in which you live. And so in that regard, perhaps tomorrow's right on the right track. In that regard, the fact that the members of the Jesus group, the lower class members are part of that rivalry just simply because they're clients of that patron. They're clients of that benefactor. We're moving into more guesswork based on what we know about the culture. Let's move on to some of the other problems and uh, issues that Paul raises. Thou shalt not sleep with thy stepmother, chapter 5. I'm paraphrasing Paul, okay? So there's some other issues that are considered moral issues for Paul, uh, where there's a, someone at Corinth who belongs to the Jesus group who is having sexual relations with his stepmother. doesn't explain whether or not the father has died or anything. It just expresses this, and Paul basically answers, how on earth can you do this? Even the pagans don't do such a thing. So there's moral problems in some cases. So there's a mixed bag of what's going on at Corinth, right? These, the guy who's sleeping with his stepmother may not be the same person who thinks some of the more sophisticated thoughts will come to later in 1 Corinthians that some of the Corinthians are thinking, that Paul also objects to. So there's a mixed bag of what's going on uh, at Corinth. That concludes this episode. I hope you'll come again. In the meantime, you can browse my website at philipharlan.com. I like early Christianity.